0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This is Method and Madness, Episode 63, Murder, Kristen O'Connell, Part 7. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Previously on Method and Madness. She was just a real sweetheart. Everybody loved Kristen. She loved loved to laugh, and it was her laugh was contagious. I mean, when she laughed, everybody kind of joined in. And, and just, she would just sit down and talk about anything and everything. And wasn't in a hurry as far as she really kind of listened to people and, you know, gave her... Um, thoughts about different subjects and things like that. If she wanted to be your friend, she didn't care if you didn't want to be her friend. She'd make you her friend. (laughs) You know? Because she was just impossible not to like. She was beautiful. She had long brown hair. You know? Beautiful eyes. Just an amazing way about her. But like I said, it didn't matter if you didn't want to be her friend. You would end up being her friend. vowed that after she was found there that I would never rest never until I find out who did this to her and who killed her hi and welcome back to another episode on the unsolved murder of Kristen O'Connell thank you for being here This is the seventh episode in Kristen's story. If you haven't listened to the first six parts, I recommend going back and starting with episode 56, which was released March 7th. In the sixth part of Kristen's story, I told you how a timeline episode was on its way, as I've been combing through a lot of details and wanted to present them as an accent to this miniseries. The hope is that it could help the case or spark a memory in someone. It's also a way of keeping Kristen's story alive and a reminder that this story is yet to be finished. I debated how to present the information. There's a lot of it. I wrote and rewrote, edited. I still want Kristen to be the focus, though. This series has already been heard all over the globe and generated several tips, all of which have been sent along to the New York State Police and lead investigator, Pete McHadden. And for that, I'm so very grateful, and Kristen's family is too, so thank you. Thank you for caring about her. Aside from the tips sent in, so many listeners have reached out expressing their sympathy for the O'Connell family and a desire to see this case solved. I would say that most of the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive of seeing this case solved. Throughout the series, most of the theories that have been circulating about this case were explored. After all, they are a part of Kristen's story. While on a trip, away from home, visiting a friend, was Kristen simply a victim of opportunity as she took a late-night walk, or was there more to it? Whether Kristen stumbled upon something she wasn't supposed to see in an area that had some drug business going on, or that she might have mentioned her friend, the FBI agent, which was taken the wrong way, or if she simply went for a walk, was spotted by the wrong person or persons. Kristen was brutally killed and left in a cornfield, naked. Someone with a knife was out there, in the dark, and terrified her. They caused her to scream so loudly that at midnight, people inside their homes could hear the anguish. And as Kristen most likely knew these were the last moments of her life, she tried to fight. On the side of an unlit road, someone stabbed Kristen. Someone cut her throat. Here's her mother, Phyllis. I just can't believe if anybody really knew her, they would have killed her and known who she was. With the outreach of listeners who have grown to care about Kristen, there have been questions about what exactly she did while she was in Ovid. So here it is. Kristen's steps from her flight out of Minneapolis to the walk she took the night she was murdered. The details provided in this episode are based on witness statements, investigative interviews with persons of interest, and acquaintances of Kristen's, and information provided by Kristen's family. Some of the information provided in interviews is from the 1980s when the case was fresh Some was uncovered over years of investigating and some of the information came out through interviews conducted for this series. Since the release of the series, I've spoken with two of the people that were at the trailer the night that Kristen was murdered. I'm very grateful for their input and their kindness. They want to see this case get solved. It's completely understandable that some details provided recently may be muddled, as we know what happens to memory over a period of time. It doesn't necessarily mean someone is being deliberately untruthful if a story changes slightly. I will continue to keep identities anonymous, where applicable, at the contributors' requests. This is Part 7 of Kristen's story. Let's dive in. 20-year-old Kristen O'Connell was a college student at the University of Wisconsin-Stout on spring break in March of 1985. She drove from her home state of Minnesota down to Captiva Island in Florida to unwind for a week. Her friend Sue was at her side. It was on that trip that Kristen met him. It had all the makings of a sweet romance— meeting someone on vacation, getting those butterflies, and knowing you just wanted them in your life in some capacity. Kristen met a young man named Jim Vermeersch. Their time together was brief, but it was enough that they decided to keep in touch. They exchanged phone numbers and addresses, and Kristen had a new pen pal. After months of writing to each other, a trusting Kristen made the decision to fly out to see Jim at the home where he lived with his parents, in the Finger Lakes region, Of New York State, which is a very rural area. It was the third week of August, 1985. Originally, Kristen's friend Sue planned on joining her but changed her mind at the last minute and stayed back to prepare for the upcoming semester of college. Kristen stuck with her plan and went solo. It's unclear whether Jim had romantic intentions with Kristen or not. Some of his friends have said he thought highly of her, But whether he wanted something serious is unknown. Right as Kristen was finalizing her travel to New York, Jim informed her that he was moving into a trailer and that they'd be staying there, not at his parents' house. It seems he was trying to get a little freedom that summer and have a place of his own. The trailer was located right next to the Golden Buck, a local, family-owned restaurant and bar. It didn't deter Kristen that the plan had changed slightly. She was hoping that the connection they'd made months earlier would grow stronger if they could just get to know each other better and in person. It was Sunday, August 11th, 1985, when Kristen took an early flight from Minneapolis to Boston, where she was picked up at Logan Airport by Bill and Ellen Beck, friends of the O'Connell family. Phyllis O'Connell felt more at ease knowing her only daughter was meeting up with a trusted friend of the family on her first trip solo, and that he'd ensure she made it to her destination safely. Kristen was with the Beck's for the rest of that day, seeing the sights in Boston. The following day, Monday, Bill Beck drove Kristen down to Phoenix, New York, to the home of Mary Holland, an old friend of both the O'Connell's and the Beck's. At the Holland home, Kristen had dinner, and Mary told her that if at any point she was uncomfortable and ovid and needed to be picked up to give her a call and that Kristen could stay with her until her flight, if need be. Years later, Mary Holland expressed to investigators that she always felt guilty that she didn't have an answering machine back then and never knew if Kristen had attempted to call her. After dinner, Bill Beck drove Kristen from Mary's house to Syracuse, New York, where they met Jim Vermeer at a prearranged location, the Shopping Town Mall. Jim was there with his friend, David. Jim introduced himself to Bill, and Kristen's suitcase was put into David's trunk. They were off to Ovid. The three arrived in Ovid late that night, and when they got to Jim's trailer, David's girlfriend at the time, Anne, was there waiting with another friend of the group, Chris. They all sat around, chatted, and Kristen was Kristen, the very one we've learned to know and love. She was friendly, nice, easy to talk to, though there may have been a little bit of awkwardness as this was her and Jim's first time seeing each other in months. After Jim's friends trickled out of the trailer that night and headed for their own homes, Jim and Kristen spent the night there at the trailer. There was one thing that Kristen's younger brother Kyle told me when we chatted for episode 6, something that really stood out, and possibly answers more than one question surrounding the case. It may answer these two questions. Why wasn't Jim interested in Kristen romantically? as she began to realize, the longer she stayed in Ovid, and what was so uncomfortable about being there that Kristen wanted to leave early. In episode 6, my dear friend Kyle O'Connell described teenage males more eloquently than I can muster, as bags of hormones. And I can't stop thinking about the connection between Jim not being interested in his guest and Kristen wanting to leave early. Is it possible that the first night at the trailer, Jim tried to advance things to be sexual in nature, and Kristen, a virgin, saving herself for marriage, declined? It could explain why Jim spent the next two days working, and why Kristen would begin to feel like he didn't want her there. If he thought she was flying halfway across the country to see him, did he have an expectation? Did that disappointment lead him to brush Kristen off? And now she felt turned down, and rightfully so, possibly used. The following day was Tuesday, and Jim, who had a few different jobs that summer, worked, and even picked up some extra shifts that week. It's unclear if that was the plan all along, or if it was a last-minute decision. And why? Why have a friend visiting from out of town only to spend most of that time working? I wish I could answer some of these questions with more than theories, but despite several attempts, Jim is not talking. So Kristen ended up spending more time with his friends than with her host. Chris lived in the area, but was keeping some belongings at the trailer to hang out with his friends before heading off to college. That Tuesday, Chris was at work from about 8 to 4, and once his shift was over, he headed to the trailer and hung out with Kristen until Jim got off work around 5. But what did Kristen do that whole day by herself in a trailer? She took it easy, got some needed rest after her travels, and spent the afternoon by herself. But she had brought shoes with her that were bothering the backs of her ankles, and she was getting blisters, so she walked up to the grocery store in town, the Big M, to buy Band-Aids and other items. The details of what happened that night have always been a little fuzzy. There was a movie that Jim, Kristen, Chris, and his girlfriend were planning on seeing in Seneca Falls, but it had already started by the time they got to the theater, so they skipped it all together and went to get ice cream. Jim later told police that Kristen went for a walk some point that night. Wednesday morning came, Kristen's last morning, though she didn't know that. Jim worked from 10.30 a.m. until about 5 that day, but Chris was off and he and Kristen spent the day together. Around noon, Kristen took a shower over at Chris's house as the trailer didn't have a working one. They also did some swimming at Chris's house and had a casual day. There was a witness that later told one investigator that while swimming that day, there were some other girls there, locals, that were apparently bad-mouthing Kristen. This is, of course, just another statement by a witness, and it's unclear how true it is. But it's also a bit confusing based on how much we've learned about Kristen, that there was simply nothing too bad mouth about her. But we also see this kind of behavior in teens of this age. 18 or 19-year-old girls, a 20-year-old stunning beauty from Minnesota comes into town. Was there some jealousy there? At some point that afternoon, Kristen called her mom, Phyllis, from the payphone inside the Golden Buck and let her know that she was coming home earlier than expected. You'll remember that Phyllis was unable to ascertain exactly the reason Kristen was cutting her trip short. We know from Kyle O'Connell that his sister would have had to be pretty unhappy or uncomfortable to want to change her plans like that. And further, this was the 80s and not a time when you could easily change a flight without a lot of hassle, anyway. After Jim got off work, he didn't go see Kristen. He went to his friend Anne's house, which her family was in the process of moving out of, and the two swam in her pool one last time. According to an interview she did with investigators, Jim was feeling uncomfortable around Kristen at this point. She seemed to see him in a romantic sense, whereas Anne didn't think that Jim felt the same about Kristen. That evening, the heat still hadn't broken, and Kristen, along with some of Jim's friends, went swimming at Anne's grandma's house on the lake. We discussed this at length in episode five, how there were at least three different versions of what happened that day at the lake. The group had encountered Gary Harris, a young teen who had stolen David's car and taken it for a joyride. Depending on which version of events you believe, the group either drove Gary back to the Golden Buck and dropped him off, or they brought him down to the lake with them, either as a friendly invite or as a threat, even going so far as to hold his head under the water until he came up choking. In this version, Kristen intervened and had Gary sit with her while the others swam. This is probably one of the biggest discrepancies from that day, as each version is starkly different in details and in intent. I imagine that Gary's version of the truth may be the closest to reality. Whether or not the retaliation about the car was actually that extreme or not will probably never be known. But if that's the closest to the truth, it makes sense that the other's version of the events, when questioned by investigators, would be to put them in a more innocent light. Besides, it's pretty hard to believe that right after a teenager steals your car, You'd be inviting them for a friendly swim. That night, according to a few statements, the group was supposed to attend a concert, but that didn't happen. This is where another discrepancy lies. Anne told an investigator back in the 80s that she had tickets to see Don Henley the night of Wednesday, August 14th, in Binghamton, New York. But she and her friends, Kristen included, didn't go because Anne had been in a minor car accident that week and her parents wanted her to stay close to home. So instead, the group stayed around in Ovid and hung out at the trailer. But Don Henley didn't have a show there on the night of Wednesday, August 14th. So why tell an investigator this? You can find a link to this information in the show notes. Don Henley performed in New York City on Friday, August 9th, In Ohio on Tuesday, August 13th, and then he didn't have another show until Sunday, August 18th in Saratoga Springs, over three hours from Ovid and two days after Kristen's body was found. So, is this an issue of memory? Could there have been tickets for something else? Who knows? Could this have been something that any investigator could easily fact check? Absolutely. So, why lie? I don't know. Instead, the group hung out at Ann's house that evening where they played pool. They stayed there for about 45 minutes before heading back to the trailer. The group started to trickle in at the trailer around 10.30 p.m., and there were nine people hanging out, including Kristen, and the friends sort of came and went throughout the night. So we're at the point in the night where Kristen takes her walk, the walk that ends in her murder. Let's take a break. Are you a true crime advocate passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? You can immerse yourself in an unforgettable experience at this year's True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, which takes place in Austin, Texas, August 25th to the 27th, 2023. I attended last year, and let me tell you, this is a fantastic event that features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts, with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. And if the paranormal and spooky are your thing, you'll get plenty of that too. To get tickets, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin, don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal to the next level. Use the code METHOD for 15% off your ticket and spend the weekend with some very special guests. Julie Murray, sister of missing woman Maura Murray, Tara Newell and Collier Landry of the Survivor Squad podcast, and the family of Katie Palmer. That's truecrimepodcastfestival.com. Hope to see you there. The people that Kristen left behind in the trailer when she went out for her walk were all cleared as suspects, and truth be told, those close to this case don't really believe that any of them were directly involved in the murder of Kristen O'Connell. But some of the silence, the discrepancies and stories may come from events that would indirectly lead to Kristen's murder. If Jim hadn't blown Kristen off, If he had been more present, if the situation with Gary Harris hadn't occurred, would Kristen feel uncomfortable? Would she have taken a walk that night if she were having a great time? It still doesn't make anyone but the killer responsible for Kristen's murder. Now, there are also a few versions of when and why Kristen went for a walk that night and who saw her leave the trailer. One witness said that Kristen had pulled Chris's girlfriend aside and asked to talk. The two had become somewhat friendly, and Kristen felt comfortable talking to her. During this conversation, Kristen expressed her disappointment that Jim didn't even seem interested in her, and asked, Why did he even invite me here? Some have said that Jim actually had a girlfriend at the time, and that may have contributed to him brushing Kristen off, though nobody seems to be in agreement on whether or not that was the case. Jim told investigators in 1985 that this wasn't the case. Kristen told Chris's girlfriend she was going for a walk. Possibly to clear her head, she walked out of the trailer. She then headed toward the area of the Golden Buck. Nobody else saw her leave as they were all down at the other side of the trailer. Now, other witnesses from the trailer told investigators that they did see Kristen walk out of the trailer but nobody was concerned. It was just a walk. Some accounts of that night are that Jim was there when Kristen walked out. Others say he'd already left to go get a pizza up at Buster's on Main Street in downtown Ovid, around 11.40 p.m. in one of his friend's cars. Locals have been skeptical about this detail, saying that there was no way Buster's was open that late on a Wednesday in 1985. But according to an August 21st, 1985 interview with the owner of Buster's, they were indeed open. Martin Ahouse, the owner at the time, said that Jim showed up that night between 11 and 11.15, before a big rush they had at 11.30, and then the business closed at midnight. In any case, the one discrepancy with this is days later, when Phyllis O'Connell asked Jim why he didn't take Kristen with him to go get pizza, his response was that he went on his motorcycle and Kristen didn't want to ride on it. It's these discrepancies and others that prompted Phyllis and Mike O'Connell to tell reporters in 1985 that there seemed to be a lot of confusion about the people that Kristen spent her time with, about who was where, who was doing what. And back then, it probably should have been pretty simple to retell the events as it was so fresh. It's estimated that Jim was gone for only 15 minutes, and that when he returned to the trailer, Kristen was already gone. Upon hearing from his friends that Kristen had gone for a walk, Jim didn't bat an eyelash, as she had gone for a walk the night before. It was a very hot summer night. The trailer was located right next to the Golden Buck, with patrons out on the outdoor deck, just enjoying their summer night. The reason that Kristen went barefoot on her walk, it was summer, she was outdoorsy, and that didn't shock people who knew her. Also, we know that blisters were bothering her, so she may have just been more comfortable going shoeless. Hearing that someone saw Kristen head toward the golden buck after leaving the trailer makes me wonder if she encountered someone in the parking lot or next to the buck or on that deck out back. Someone who saw the attractive Brooke Shields look-alike. And after having won too many beers, they began to engage Kristen in conversation. Maybe she politely engages back, before turning and walking down the dark road. Maybe she rejected someone. And now, feeling like she made a mistake even coming to New York, she did something she loved doing. Something that would make her feel good. She went stargazing. Private investigator Noel Hotchkiss believes Kristen may have been walking down that dark road to use a payphone in order to call Mary Holland to see if she could stay with her until her flight home. Noel's hunch is that the reason Kristen turned around and headed back the other way toward the village and toward the trailer is that the business which housed that payphone was dark. After some time had passed, the kids in the trailer started smoking marijuana Chris's girlfriend, who didn't want to engage in that, was getting concerned that Kristen hadn't yet returned. She and Chris went out looking for Kristen after she hadn't come back for 20-ish minutes. The Golden Buck and the trailer are situated on Seneca Street, and Ann Street runs perpendicular. They walked down Ann in the darkness and paused near the intersection of Hawkins Road when they heard the scream described multiple times by witnesses as blood-curdling, followed by a muffled cry. The pair returned to the trailer and told their friends what they'd heard. Jim said he drove about, looking for Kristen sometime after that, and also walked a friend home. And after all of that, Kristen still hadn't returned, and nobody found her while searching. Everyone had left the trailer by 2 a.m. According to the medical examiner's report, Kristen was already dead by then. Was she lying in the cornfield? Shoved into a car or a truck somewhere? Wherever she was, she was discarded. Left without even the dignity of her clothing on top of her. Back in Minneapolis, her family slept, unaware that their lives were forever altered in the most terrible way. Kristen was found that Friday just after 5 p.m., And here we are, at the time of this episode release, 13,795 days since. I've been asked a lot during this journey, what do you think happened to Kristen O'Connell? Full disclosure, the only people that have full access to all of the files on this case are law enforcement officials. There's most likely a whole lot we don't know suspects, persons of interest, written down somewhere in a filing cabinet, somewhere in New York State. All that said, from combing through what I do have access to and talking to the people who want to talk, and thanks to the tireless efforts of the private investigators over the years, I have my opinions. Some of the theories I've presented throughout the series I don't personally or necessarily believe are tied to Kristen's murder— But my opinions aren't what's going to solve this case. The goal, all along, of launching this series was to get attention on the case and to push for DNA to be tested. It's sitting there. There's evidence. It's time. There's renewed interest in the case. Kristen is being talked about, and people care. So here's your call to action. Keep sharing Kristen's story. Share it with three people if you can and join the Facebook group Justice for Kristen O'Connell to get updates and information on upcoming calls to action. I've said it once, but it bears repeating. This isn't goodbye, so until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741. 741.